We actually did manage to finish at a chapter division last time. We, we finished John chapter 9, and we're going to be starting John chapter 10 today, which might sound like we got to a good stopping spot, but we really didn't. Uh, the chapter divisions, remember, were not added by John. They were added much later, and sometimes they are added in very reasonable places to have a chapter division. Sometimes I think someone just wanted to have a chapter to be a certain length, and they had to put a chapter division someplace, and I think the division between John 9 and John 10 would be that sort of chapter division. And so it's, it's very much best to ignore it. What we saw in John chapter 9 is going to be very important. And you know, I, I don't think that there's any break at all in either time or thought between John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. I think this is a, a continuation, although it certainly is going to kind of shift focuses a little bit. Uh, in John chapter 9, we, we saw the healing of a man that was born blind. And as is typical in John, John was much more concerned with the significance of the sign than the sign itself. So the miracle itself takes place over six verses. You know, the remaining you know, 35 verses of the chapter, roughly, you look at the outcome of the healing. What we saw is that the you know, religious leaders were, were brought in right away. They investigated. They tried to discredit the sign. They couldn't do that. And so then they put you know, increasing amounts of pressure both on the man and his family to try to say something negative about Jesus. And the man who's healed won't do that. In fact, he starts to see what's going on and he stands up for Jesus uh, more and more. And you know, despite not having in presumably any theological training, uh, any education, you know, he's able to show the religious leaders for what they are. He's, um, they kind of end up looking like fools, and because of that, they throw him out of the synagogue at the end of this chapter. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is going to comment on what happens in John chapter 9. So it's very good to keep in mind what happened in, in John 9. You know, the, the blind man is shown to be healed. The Pharisees, are in fact, are, are shown to be blind, and that's the, the closing verses of the uh, chapter. Um, so, Keeping all of that in mind, listen to what Jesus says about the events in John chapter 9. We're going to look first at the first six verses, and then we're going to kind of keep going with the chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, and that you know, emphasizes that something important is coming. He who does not enter by the sheepfold, but by the door, climbs in, uh, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought uh, out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. And so I, I want to start just with figure of speech. Um, it, it's a word that could mean a number of things, including uh, parable, but I, I suspect that this is probably not quite a parable. If it is, it's the only parable in the Gospel of John, or at least it's the closest thing that the Gospel of John might have to recording one of Jesus' parables. And I think for various reasons, John intentionally chose not to include any of Jesus' parables in his gospel. I think it's more of an illustration. Um, 
but it, it certainly could be a fair parable. You'll find a number of you know, really good pastors that would, would take it that way. Um, another thing that I've already mentioned but is, is worth reiterating is that there's no indication that time has passed at all since you know, the last verse in chapter 9. I, I really do think that this happens exactly right after you know, the, the last verse in 9. Jesus is, is continuing to talk, so that there, is, there isn't a break. Um, and if you just try to ignore the chapter breaks and the new headings in the, the Bible that you have, you know, the text flows very well continuously. Um, and remember the, the last verse in chapter 9, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say you see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you. And I think that's really how it's supposed to be read. The, the connection makes very good sense. You will certainly see disagreements, uh, you, uh, whether it, it should be read as, as following immediately or not, but I, I think that's probably the best way to read it. In chapter 9, what we see is Jesus doing the works of God. Uh, Jesus restores spiritual sight to a man. Now, he, he demonstrates his power by, by performing a supernatural miracle, but there's certainly more to it than that as well. Um, he restores spiritual sight, and that's the real significance of what happens in John chapter 9. Um, at the same time, those are sup that were supposed to be leading Israel spiritually should have been the first ones to see Jesus for who he is. And they should have been the ones to be leading people to Jesus. Instead, they do exactly the opposite. They uh, try to keep people from seeing the works that Jesus is doing. They try to suppress uh, the knowledge of what, what's going on. And when the man that was born blind that was healed stands up for what Jesus did, they excommunicate him. They throw him out of the synagogue. Um, they are not behaving like the shepherds to God's people should behave. They're pretty much obviously the target of what Jesus is teaching uh, here. Now, with all of this in mind, let's start to look at the picture that Jesus is giving. And to do that, Jesus is taking something that would be familiar to his audience. It would be part of their everyday experience, but he's talking to an agrarian society in the first century. And even if someone grew up on a farm, some things about how even sheep are farmed, sheep are not commonly farmed in the U.S., but they were very commonly farmed in the first century, at least in that part of the world. Um, even to someone that grew up on a farm, some of the things wouldn't be familiar. So I, I want to uh, explain how a sheep pen at this time works. It would probably look something like this. You know, th there certainly could be variations, but there's one way in and one way out, and that's going to be important as the chapter develops. And there's several reasons why multiple families with different flocks might use one sheep pen together. One of those reasons is that you know, the, the time and the effort to build one of these would be significant, and it's a lot easier to build one that's big enough to hold a few different flocks in one spot than to build three separate pens. Another reason, and we're going to see this later in the chapter, is that someone is going to need to stay with the sheep overnight, and it's cheaper just to have you know, one pen with one person staying with the sheep overnight than have three separate pens with three different people 
all staying out overnight to watch you know, uh, smaller flocks. So that's, this is the picture that you should have in your mind of uh, what the, the sheep pen that Jesus is talking about is going to look like. Um, another thing to know is that sheep don't have a lot of intellectual gifts. Um, even among farm animals, uh, which are generally stupid, sheep are stupid in comparison to farm animals. Um, there's, there's not much that they can do well, but there is one thing that, is, uh, that they are able to do. They're, they're able to hear you know, their specific shepherd's voice. And so the, the sheep are going to get mixed in this pen overnight. There's going to be three or four different flocks in there possibly. And a shepherd is going to come for his sheep in the morning to lead them out to pasture. And that shepherd would do one of several things, and this still goes on in the Middle East even today. Apparently, you, you can see this. Uh, the, the shepherd would either sing or the shepherd might play a musical instrument, and the sheep would recognize that specific sound. And that flock would go to the shepherd, and the rest of the sheep would ignore them. And, and so that particular flock would kind of come out from a, a larger group of sheep every morning. Um, and sheep are not capable of much, but they are capable of doing that quite well. And so that's part of the picture that is important to understand. If we look back at the text, there's a lot of things that we might look for to try to say, well, what does this represent? What does that represent? Um, you know, the, the gatekeeper and the, the sheep. I don't think that every single thing in this particular picture necessarily needs to represent something. This is probably not an allegory. Uh, the difference between a parable and an allegory is that it, in an allegory, if it's well designed, everything in the allegory represents something that the allegory is trying to refer to. A parable is more something that's trying to get at a specific idea, and the parable illustrates that idea well, but it's not an allegory in that not every single element of the parable necessarily needs to correspond to something. And I, I think this is uh, closer to that in that it, I don't think everything has to correspond to anything particularly. Like, I'm not sure what the gatekeeper uh, in this necessarily is. But uh, there are a lot of things that we can assign, I think, with a lot of confidence. Jesus is obviously the shepherd, or the good shepherd, at least in this. I think that's uh, very clear. The, the sheep that hear his voice are, are the elect. They're... Um, those that have been chosen from eternity to follow Jesus, when they hear Jesus' voice, they will respond to that voice. And those that are not elect will hear the same voice, but they don't respond. Uh, the, the remaining sheep, um, uh, you know, the, the, those are, are simply not God's sheep. Um, those that sneak in are the leaders. They're you know, claiming to represent God to the sheep, but in fact, they're not coming in by God's authority, they're coming in on their own authority. Jesus' sheep will recognize these as someone other than the true shepherd, and they don't follow them. And that's exactly what we see in the previous chapter with the blind man. The blind man heard Jesus' voice and followed. Everyone else in the chapter, the man's parents, the, the religious leaders, they saw the same events, and they, they heard Jesus' voice in the, pretty much the same way that the blind man did, but they didn't hear it. They, they didn't follow um, 
And so how, how does this fit with the chapter 9 incident? I think we, we can kind of see that Jesus was doing the works of the Father. He was healing the blind uh, physically in, in that case, but it, it was also pointing to the, the spiritual blindness that he also healed. The blind man saw Jesus as a shepherd worth following, or in the language of the illustration, the blind man heard Jesus' voice. You know, the parents um, who had also been blessed by that same miracle saw the same thing, but they didn't see Jesus as a shepherd that was worth following. Their, their position in the synagogue was more valuable to them. They didn't spiritually hear Jesus' voice, although it was equally plain to them. The religious leaders, those are the thieves and the robbers that are interested in exploiting the sheep, not leading them to good pastures. The blind man was pressured to follow the lead of the religious leaders and to denounce Jesus. I think it's reasonable to expect that um, he would have followed those leaders out of respect for their superior position, their education, and their intellect, except for one thing. He'd heard the voice of his shepherd, the true shepherd, and he knew who he should follow uh, because he was Jesus' sheep. Now, isn't this a little bit simplistic, though? You know, Jesus is saying that you know, he's the good shepherd. Everyone else is a, a thief or a robber. Where do, where do the prophets in the Old Testament fit in the, and the apostles and other godly leaders? Um, and the, the very first thing, of course, is to say that this isn't an allegory, but I think even in this simple picture that Jesus is using, we, we really can fit you're kind of good spiritual teachers into this. Um, a, a good spiritual teacher is someone that leads people to Jesus, uh, and the thieves and the robbers are those that don't. If a godly leader you know, points to Jesus primarily and doesn't point to themselves primarily, God's sheep will hear Jesus' voice, in a sense, through that leader, and that leader can lead them to follow to Jesus. Uh, strangers in this picture ultimately don't lead to Christ. They might have a Bible in their hand. They might have plenty of theological titles. They might use the same vocabulary as a, a godly leader. But ultimately, that leader doesn't know Jesus. Jesus. And therefore, as we're going to see as the chapter develops, that, that leader's motivations will ultimately be selfish. Um, Jesus' true sheep will not recognize them and will not follow that leader ultimately at least. So with all of this, I'd like to go back to an Old Testament passage that I really do think Jesus is referring to. At the very least, this passage in the Old Testament is referring to the same ideas that Jesus is referring to here, but I, I think Jesus is intentionally looking back at it. Uh, this is found in Ezekiel chapter 34. We'll look at this chapter a few times, so if you have your Bible, it's certainly worth turning to. Um, I'm going to read a, a good chunk of it. I actually could read more because the entire chapter really fits well with what we're talking about and is talking about very much the same thing. But I think we'll get enough if we look at just kind of a section of it. I'm going to start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, um, who have been feeding yourselves, should, you not, uh, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe your, yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, 
The stranded you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search for them or seek them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but my shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, uh, the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hands, and I will put a stop to their feeding on the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As the shepherd seek, uh, sorry, seeks out his flock uh, when it is among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I she- seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all, all the places inhabited in the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the high heights of Israel shall, there, shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down with good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. The chapter continues. It, it continues to have relevance as well. I probably read more than I should, but it, it fits so well. I just was hard to find a, a good spot to stop. I think the, the portion that I read, though, makes the point adequately. The Pharisees know the Old Testament well enough to know and recognize the allusions that uh, Jesus is making. We can, kind of looking at this as, as outsiders, we can see that their actions are perfectly in alignment with the bad shepherds that are described in this passage. The leaders will not see this. Remember, we see clearly in chapter 9 that it's not that it's hard to see. The problem is that they're willfully blind. If you've ever seen, for example, an Arminian theologian that's really perplexed by what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, so then it, and Paul means salvation very clearly here, so when salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If you've ever seen an Arminian really struggle with trying to figure out what that means, I think you've kind of seen an example of that willful blindness. The words in Romans 9, 6 aren't hard to understand, but they're extremely hard to understand in a way that an Arminian is willing to accept. And similarly, the picture that Jesus gives is not a difficult picture to understand, especially in light of Old Testament Scripture. Um, but it's a picture that they're simply not willing to accept. And so they, uh, they did not understand what he was saying to them in this figure of speech. And so that brings us to verse 7. They, they didn't understand it. 
So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So the, the first thing that might kind of jump out if you're somewhat familiar with the Gospel of John is that we have an I am statement here. And if you're familiar with John, whenever you see Jesus say, I am something, that tells you there's something important. Jesus has seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I, I believe this is the third. Uh, I should have written that down. Um, they're going to kind of pick up as we uh, keep going in, in the Gospel, and they continue into the second half of the Gospel, which we're not going to cover right away. Um, so we, we know that something important is being said, and this is one of the I am statements that's probably less easy to see right away what Jesus means. We probably need to know a little bit of more about first century animal husbandry to understand this particular one. So we're going to go back to the sheep pen. There's one way in and one way out of a typical first century Middle Eastern sheep pen. Um, now you might think, well, wait a minute. Why would you have somebody sitting in, in, uh, in this to guard it? Why not just you know, build a gate and you know, leave the sheep in there overnight and go sleep in a nice warm bed? Um, there's several reasons for that. First of all, you know, gates are a little bit hard to build without nails and saws. So it, it, it would be a more significant construction project than it would be today, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is that a gate can be circumvented pretty well. A predator could dig right under it. Uh, or sheep could kind of push their way under it. More significantly, a thief or a robber wouldn't have any trouble getting around a, a gate. So you need to have somebody out there anyway. And so the most logical place to put them is to have the shepherd that's staying with the sheep overnight be the gate. Uh, and the word that's translated door could just as easily be gate. Uh, I'm honestly not sure why it isn't translated that way. It, it may be that uh, it, without this picture clearly in your mind, maybe door gives the idea that Jesus is trying to get out a little bit better. But I, I think in this picture, understanding you know, what the sheep pen looks like, gate is probably what I would prefer at least. Another uh, feature, of course, of having a shepherd out there is that if the sheep are able to kind of get around anything you know, the, and start wandering off, the shepherd would become aware of it. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of good reasons to have a, a shepherd out there that's being the door. If the sheep are to get to pasture and water, they need to go out through the door. If the sheep is being carried over the wall, nothing very good is likely to happen to that sheep. Um, so if the sheep are going to be safe at night, they need to enter that secure guarded pen through the door. Not going through that door means that they're not going to be in the safety of the pen. They're not going to enjoy the protections of the pen. And more importantly, they're not going to have a shepherd nearby to watch them. And sheep are quite defenseless. Um, um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. A sheep outside of a pen would probably not have a very long life expectancy. Um, so, 
There's another thing that I think is worth taking a look at. Um, Psalm uh, 118, 9 through 14. If we remember that door could just as easily be translated as gate, uh, listen to, to that psalm and you know, wonder whether um, this, this is a messianic psalm, psalm. I've included enough that you can kind of see that. And so think about what Jesus is saying when he's saying that he is the door or he is the gate. Um, this is uh, Psalm 118, 19 through 24. Open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. So I, I think what you can see Jesus saying is you know, um, he's connecting himself to the door that people get to God through that you know, this Messianic psalm is, is pointing towards. There's another feature. There's a lot we could do with what, what it means that, that Jesus is the door. He's the way uh, to God. Another thing to think about is other major world religions. And are there equivalents of a door or a gate in another major world religions? Uh, and I'm going to argue no. If you look at anything besides Christianity, at least anything large enough that I've heard of it, um, those, those religions are overwhelmingly based on a teaching or a set of teachings or ideas. It's the information that's important. You know, if you know this or if you believe that or if you do a certain set of things or if you send a check to the right address, you're going to be okay. Um, you know, even the, all of our problems might disappear if you kind of get this information and believe it hard enough and you know, respond appropriately to, to the information that this religion has revealed. That's kind of the, the main substance of that religion. Um, the vehicle of the message might have some importance in the religion, but another person could have come along and could have had those same thoughts or been revealed the same information somehow, and it wouldn't really make a difference to how that religion functions. You know, Muslims may well make a, a very significant deal out of Muhammad, but if God had come to somebody else and given the same revelation to a different prophet, it wouldn't really make any difference in how Islam functions. In Christianity, uh, the Bible consistently claims that our hope isn't in a certain message. It's in a person. That's the gate. It, your belief in Jesus isn't simply knowing and believing certain facts but it's knowing a person and placing our faith in that person for our deliverance. Christianity is recognizing Jesus as the door, the only way to salvation, and then going to salvation through Jesus. No other individual in human history has claimed anything of the sort. They haven't claimed to be the door the, uh, of the sheep. At least they haven't made that claim in a way that's ever caught on. Uh, and I say that because there simply isn't another world religion that has any, anyone like Jesus in it. Now, another, there's a lot of things to look at in here, but if we look at verse 10b, you know, I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. John's gospel is just rich in the, you know, these you know, deep and, and memorable statements. There's, there's a lot of them. We could very easily spend several Sundays just looking at what John means 
by this, but John brings up the same sorts of ideas multiple times. And we've, we've talked about what it means to have life in Jesus. And so I'm, I'm not going to go into that in, in much detail. But there, there is one thing that I think is worth noting that connects with some of the other ideas in, in this. It's not hard to imagine that Jesus isn't at least partly referring to the abundant life under God's provision that's pictured in places like Psalm 23. So just listen to uh, Psalm 23 and see you know, kind of the abundant life that's kind of pictured in that psalm that I, I think Jesus is probably referring to. Uh, Jesus could certainly be referring to many other places in the Old Testament as well. But just listen to the abundant life that Psalm 23 pictures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all, my, all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Psalm 23 is speaking of God as our shepherd. And it's remarkable that Jesus is making the same claim here. Uh, this is just one of many, many claims to divinity that you see in, in the Gospel of John. Now, to us, we're not as steeped in the Old Testament as the Jews in Jesus' day would have been. And so these don't jump out at us quite the same way that they would have to Jesus' original audience. But to Jesus' audience, they would have heard Jesus taking on a, a role that God promises. And if we look at the parts of Ezekiel 34 that we already read, uh, Jesus already claimed to be doing many of the things that God claims to do in Ezekiel 34. But let's listen to a little bit more of Ezekiel 34, a you know, part that we haven't gotten to, and kind of ask yourself, you know, who's going to do the things that are promised? Is God going to do these things? Or is the Messiah going to do these things in, in this section of Ezekiel 34? I'm going to start in verse 22 now. So this is a part of the chapter I haven't looked at yet. I will rescue my flock, and this is God speaking uh, in, through Ezekiel. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild animal, animals from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them uh, and the places around them uh, my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season and I will be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of the, the yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey for the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none of the nations, nor, uh, and none of them, uh, and, and none shall make them afraid. I will 
provide for them a renowned plantation so that they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Uh, or sorry, and they shall know that I, the Lord them, their God, am with them. <clears throat> and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. And you are my sheep, my human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. So in 22 through 24, God is promising to send David to be their shepherd, but then in 25 through 31, we don't see that shepherd. It's God himself that's the shepherd that's leading the sheep and providing for the sheep. And you know, you, you've got to think that you know, in Jesus' day, messianic expectations were kind of at a fervor. You know, God hadn't been heard from in hundreds of years. They were you know, there hadn't been a, a, a prophet sent in, in 400 years, and then John the Baptist shows up. You know, they were under the, the yoke of Rome, and they were kind of yearning for the Messiah. And so you know, prophecy seminars would have been you know, as popular as they are in many parts of Christianity today, maybe even more so. So parts of the Old Testament that refer to the Messiah would be studied and scrutinized. They want to understand what to look for uh, to see the Messiah as he's coming. And you know, this is obviously a messianic text, and so the audience would be particularly familiar with it, especially the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But there's this mystery in it. God is promising to do things, and then the Messiah is there. Which is it? Is it God doing that, or is it the Messiah that's doing that? And that must have been a mystery to them. You know, uh, how is it that the Messiah is going to do these things that God himself is, is doing? Because the you know, their, their picture of the Messiah was going to be a human being. I think only by understanding the Messiah, David's greater son, also as God in the flesh, can we really make any sense out of Ezekiel 34 and lots of other passages in the Old Testament as well. Um, the, the plain meaning just does not work any other way. The Pharisees, you know, they were they were eager to understand this. They were trying to figure this out, and it must have confused them as to um, what, what was being referred to here. Now, throughout John, we've seen Jesus try again and again to help the Pharisees to see who he really is. And often, he, he does this by pointing to parts of Scripture that would help them to unlock that mystery if they had eyes to see. Um, they undoubtedly knew and understood the challenges that this section faced, but um, they simply weren't, wouldn't uh, want to accept what uh, the only way of interpreting this passage was. They're, they're remaining willfully blind. Let me uh, go on to John verse 11. So I'm going to uh, read from John again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up, take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The charge I 
this charge I have received from my father. Uh, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many, said to, uh, many of them said, he has a demon and, he, and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one that's oppressed by a demon. Demon, Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So what does Jesus' proclamation that he's the good shepherd tell us? And I, I think the best place to start here is with sheep. Uh, the first thing to know about sheep, both in Jesus' day and, and now, is that they're domesticated animals. Um, domestic, domesticated sheep, in fact, are so different from wild sheep that we don't really know what species sheep are domesticated from. Uh, they, they're just too far away from anything that you'd find in the wild. Um, it, it, it happened long ago. Domesticated sheep in Jesus' day aren't particularly different than domesticated sheep today. Um, and what domestication is, is it's really a process of using selective breeding to try to make a version of something that's more and more suited for agriculture. Um, and I, I grew up on a farm, and so I can really kind of attest to this, but one of the first things that you do in selective breeding is you'll selectively breed for stupidity. Um, now, we, you might not be thinking that as you're doing it. What you're doing is you're kind of trying to find what, which animals are the easiest to farm, and they're the stupid ones. Because the cows that we had growing up had different degrees of intelligence, and the more intelligent ones caused no end of trouble. The stupid ones were pretty easy to deal with. <laughs> um, so, you know, stupid animals are, are relatively easy to farm. Um, the result of domestication is that sheep are not able to survive on their own. If you were to take domesticated sheep and put them back in the wild, they'd be extinct in a few generations. They depend on a shepherd for survival. Um, it, this really does kind of you know, help us to see our relationship with Jesus. It teaches us that we're not able to care for our spiritual needs on our own. We need a shepherd that, to lead us to rich spiritual food and you know, the clear-flowing spiritual water that's going to satisfy our soul. You know, Jesus isn't saying that we need a shepherd to meet our physical needs in this world so much. Unbelievers are able to meet their physical needs in this world abundantly at, in many times, and at times genuine believers have ended up dying of starvation or thirst or illness and similar. But unbelievers never uh, satisfy their, their spiritual hunger. And that hunger and thirst that they feel um, uh, never will be satisfied. But Jesus continually satisfies it for us. Consistently, John's gospel pictures this as an ongoing satisfaction. We, we will never have enough of Jesus in the sense that we're satisfied and we don't need to continue to go back to Jesus for more of him. So when Jesus says, that, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, he doesn't just mean that he intends to provide eternal existence for us, but that he intends to abundantly provide what we need to have rich, full, abundant, joyful, satisfying life. And I've got life capitalized in my notes there. Jesus is contrasting what he does as the good shepherd with the hired hands. And I think it's going to be fairly ob obvious who these hired hands are in the immediate context. They're the Jewish religious, religious leaders. And in chapter 9, their selfishness and their lack of concern for the sheep were just on full display. They were disinterested in the miraculous healing of someone in their flock. 
Um, and once that person kind of became a threat to what they wanted to do with the flock and their position in the flock, they simply excommunicated him from the flock. Um, they weren't concerned with the sheep. They were concerned with their position. Any human leader deep down is going to care more for themselves than for their subjects. And the failure that you see throughout recorded human history to ever uh, establish a, a lasting good government you know, attests to our need for God as a, a true shepherd. Um, one of the things that we might think about with these verses is you know, the possibility of establishing a utopia. That's you know, something that people have consistently tried to do, and often their lack of understanding of how of real human nature has ended up doing a lot more harm than good. A, a utopia is only possible when God is assuming His proper place at the center of and uh, over all affairs. A human leader will never properly care for the sheep as only a good shepherd can. Attempts to follow a charismatic leader to a perfect world will end up placing hired hands in, uh, in charge of the sheep that they don't genuinely care for deep down. Now, does this seem reasonable? Uh, don't we, can't you think of some people that you could look to that seem like they're actually seeking power for genuinely good uh, motivations? Um, and I, I think at the surface that, that may be true, but I think if you look deep down, maybe deeper than that leader can look, their motivations will always ultimately be selfish. Um, there, there's some important things to keep in mind. No matter how noble surface motivations are, even it, to the extent that they can see them themselves, humans are always ultimately self-serving. Um, it might be very obvious that someone is self-serving if you could get a, you know, kind of statements from their Swiss bank accounts um, in other situations that, that those self-serving uh, motivations might be far more subtle, um, might be a desire for affirmation or praise. Um, but ultimately, every human being is motivated by their own good and their own glory. Uh, a Christian, though, doesn't place any hope in themselves. They, they recognize that uh, all that matters in this universe is God, and their only real hope is ultimately found in God. Now, a, a capable but unbelieving leader um, you, is sometimes able to make some real improvements. The, the economy might get better. Uh, we might have more liberty. Life might get easier. Um, but is that actually an improvement spiritually? Are people more aware of God? Does God appear more glorious and more desirable than He did before? So re remember, I'm not trying to say that political improvement, you know, isn't a good thing. And I, I'm not saying that it's something that we shouldn't work for. But I will say it's not where our hope is, at least not primarily. Our, our hope is not in any person in this world. It's not in any political party in this world. You know, the, the best that a, a person can do is to point towards Jesus Christ. And they can do that most effectively by not pointing towards themselves. So to the extent that shepherds point to Jesus, they're good shepherds. To the extent that they point to anything else, whether bad or good in this world, they'll ultimately lead pe people astray. Jesus' warning should be sobering. If we're drawn to those leaders, prim uh, if we're drawn to kind of political leaders primarily, and we tend to hear their voices more than the voices of shepherds pointing to Jesus, that's a warning sign that we may not be Jesus' sheep. Um, now, it's obviously okay and even good for Christians to be involved in politics, but I do get concerned when I see 
someone where politics becomes more and more important to them than anything else. Um, politics should always be a distant, distant second to, to Jesus. But I, I don't think this is the main thing that, that Jesus is trying to, to look at in this section. Um, I, I think this is more spiritual leadership than political leadership. The New Testament was written at a time when people had essentially zero say in the government. The Roman government simply existed. It was self-perpetuating and there was nothing that the average person could do about it. And Jesus was relatively disinterested in the Roman occupation. He was interested in pointing people towards their need for him and their need for salvation. Um, I, I think that this more specifically applies to, to Christian leaders. And so I would say the same thing about evaluating pastors and theologians. You look at someone's ministry. Are they pointing to themselves or are they pointing to Jesus Christ? And it, it can be hard to see. Uh, one of the things that I've gotten in the habit of doing, if I want to, you know, I, I listen to a lot of sermons and I you know, read a, a fair number of books. If, if there's someone that's well known, I always do a quick Google search with that person's name followed by net worth. And I've found people that have great theology and in the Reformed world that I've seen some things that are a little bit concerning about. Um, and I've found others that, you know, I, I think when I actually look at, you know, uh, what I can find about how they, they, they look to money on, you know, through Google at least, I think they, they appear to be properly motivated. They, they could be wealthy and they in, instead have donated you know, I, I could point to some that have donated the entirety of what would be millions in, in book royalties to their ministry and not given themselves control over that ministry. Um, now, that doesn't prove that that person is a good theologian worth listening to, but it's at least a good sign. Uh, and I've seen other cases where people have many hundreds of thousands in salary from their church and many hundreds of thousands in salary from their ministry and presumably much more in book royalties and things like that. And... I, I find that a little concerning. I don't know that that makes that person a bad pastor, but it, um, it, it makes me question their motivations, and I tend not to buy their books. <laughs> um, but even more than that, you know, listen to the message. You know, how often do they subtly build themselves up? How often do they, do they point to Jesus Christ? Um, and so I think that is what I would kind of suggest that you look for in trying to find good shepherds versus thieves and robbers. Um, that brings us to verse 22, which is actually a pretty good uh, d dividing point. It probably would, wouldn't have been a bad place to put a chapter division uh, rather than where the chapter division actually occurred. And I, I'm over by a couple of minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and just uh, close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you sacrificed so much and gave freely so much to be our shepherd. I pray that we would be aware of our need for a shepherd and that we would look to you to be the good shepherd of our souls, that we would come to you to find uh, lush pasture and clear flowing water. I pray that we would enjoy the spiritual bounty that you offer and that you would make us more and more aware of the riches that you freely give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.